Today's episode is brought to you by Sustainable Bitcoin Protocol. You'll be hearing more about them later on. But for now, let's get into today's interview. Happy to welcome back to Forward Guidance, Jason Shapiro of the Crowded Market Report. Jason, great to see you. How are you doing, man? Good, good. Hanging in there. I'm gl- glad to hear it. So last time you were on, you were positioned very bullish in stocks. And I think your reason was everyone else was was so bearish. There was, there was a lot more to it. As we've had a you know pretty a, a swinging market, let's say where you you had some declines, everyone got bearish, and then it went back up. And then over the past two weeks, we've had a pretty incredible you know rally in, in stocks and bonds. What have you your, what have your thoughts been on the market? And then we'll get to you know your forward views. I think it's kind of funny slash interesting that we started this year. People were massively short the stock market. And the reason they were massively short and massively bearish the stock market was that there was a recession coming. That, that was 100% the consensus coming into the beginning of this year. And now that we actually have data that maybe is telling us that a recession's coming, somehow that's become bullish because that means interest rates are going to go down and therefore the stock market can go up again. So I think that of all of it, it is, is the most interesting thing to look at. Um, and from my point of view, I can never prove any of these things, okay? But from my point of view, uh, as I talk about a lot, it always comes down to positioning. And the reasons that people give why a market does things is always after the fact. Right. So it's like you said, in the beginning of the year, they were super short. The market went up. OK. And then a few weeks ago, they ended up getting super short again. And now the market's gone up. Now, you can say that's because, OK, interest rates are coming down. But I would have to believe that had the stock market been going down like this for the last two weeks, then everybody could have said, oh, well, the recession's coming and that's why it's going down. Right. Like they make up those reasons after the fact. Right. So they're giving the reason, okay, interest rates are going down. That's why the stock market's going up. Okay, it's great to say that because the stock market's ripping. But to me, it's all about positioning and sentiment. So they were bearish very recently, the, 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 right before this rip. It looked like the whole world was coming to an end, right? Everybody had caught on, caught on to the fact that bonds were in trouble. Everybody had caught on to the fact that the U.S. government funding thing was now the big thing. You had people who had never spoken about that whole idea in their lives, all of a sudden coming out and everyone was speaking about that suddenly, right? And so as soon as they started speaking about that, up we went, right? And it's because everybody had gotten so so bearish. So that's kind of how I see it. Where it's going from here, I could tell you my guess, but it's probably no better than anybody else's guess. I just don't see a lot of consensus. The only consensus I'm really kind of hearing is that even like the bears are saying we could have a rally into year end here, but you're going to want to sell into that because then the recession's coming and they're going to get right back on that train again. Right? So I got a feeling just coming in right now, and it's going to depend a lot on how much it ends up does going up into year end. Uh, my feelings were kind of going to just kind of, wave around for a little bit here, but I got a feeling next year might be a very good year for the stock market. If, if, if the bears keep coming out again and they keep coming out with the recession thing again and say that they should sell, if they're going to sell into this rally, then they're going to start the year short again. And I don't know that they're going to do that. They might say they're going to do that, but will they actually do it? 
will show up in the data, right? But if this thing rallies into year end and they sell into that rally, then they're going to come in just like they did last year, super short. And I, I think next year could end up being a, a very good year for the stock market. I always say like shorting the stock market is my least favorite trade of any trade there is. And it's not to say that I don't do it once in a while. I do. But it has to be a special situation. You have something that has upward drift. So to me, it's got to be a very special situation to want to short stocks. And, and the special situation to me clearly is that everybody is super bullish. I cannot say everybody's super bullish here. And if, if there's a time to short the stock market in a special situation, that's one thing, then every other situation basically is not a special situation. So you, you just be long and you ride the drift. So I feel like if I had to be in something here, which I don't, and I don't have a position on stocks, but I would, I would be definitely leaning to the long side. So it really is crazy how easy it is to sound like a genius if you already know what happened. So, oh, obviously stocks are going to rally this year. It's so obvious, but it's important to remember that Main Street economists and market strategists were very bearish going into this year. And how do you think about bonds? Because the long end was in a lot of trouble two weeks ago. Then, as you say, people started becoming experts on the on the plumbing of the treasury market and the, the treasury's uh, coupon issuance, the, the quarterly refunding announcement. Since then, stocks and bonds have rallied massively. What's the positioning on bonds? And I'm you know, talking about the, the long end, and then we'll get to the, the front end as well. So the bonds are super interesting to me. I, I have been saying and believing for the last, really since the summer, that bonds are going to be the driver of everything here, right? And it's easy to say that now, but clearly you go back through my videos and stuff. I, I was saying that from the, from the summer. And then, like I say, a few weeks ago, all of a sudden, everybody was on that, right? As we know, I'm sure people you talk to, all of a sudden, that's what everybody was talking about, right? Which means that it's gone. The edge is gone, right? Once everybody is paying attention and, and captures it, doesn't necessarily mean it's going to go up or down. It just means the edge is gone. So there, there's really no more valuable information there anymore to me. Because everybody's already on it. It's discounted. You're talking about the, the correlation between stocks and bonds and that as bonds would fall in value, yields rise, so would stocks? Yes. Yes. So everyone kind of caught on to that a few weeks ago. So that edge of believing in that goes away, right? Which means, like I say, it doesn't mean the market either goes up or down. It just means there's no edge in that particular analysis anymore, right? Because it's discounted in. This is what we do. It markets a discounting mechanism, right? So I think that that edge is gone. But my feeling on bonds, my big feeling on bonds is this. You've had the largest inflow into government bond mutual funds this year in history. Okay. The last time I used those words, largest inflow into mutual funds in history was at the end of 2021, where you had the largest inflow into stock mutual funds in history, right? And that was one thing that was getting me sort of super bearish at the end of 2021. You've now had the largest inflow into bond funds this year in history. So I cannot be bullish bonds. Now, there's a couple things with that. It doesn't necessarily mean that bonds are going to get crushed, right? What it means is they are going to underperform, right? 
you're going to all the people that are should have their long term retirement accounts in 60, 40 or whatever, some kind of stock thing are loaded into bonds and they're going to wish that they weren't. Right. So maybe bonds don't necessarily get crushed, but if they don't get crushed, stocks are going to way outperform bonds. So that's kind of my feeling with, with the bond market here. Yeah. And then there's a secular tailwind of stocks in a long term basis just tend to, to cr crush stocks. Okay, so your, your comparison between everyone's flooding into bonds now, if you look at the mutual fund ETF data, reminded you of 2021 when they were flooding into stocks, and that, that's what inclined you to get bearish. I see that analogy, Jason. Huge difference, though. 2021 was a big-time rally in the stock market, and in some high-valuation, high unprofitable companies, arguably a bubble. And this time, it has been the popping of a bubble. Like, bonds have collapsed in value. Does that impact your analysis at all or no? It scares me even more, quite frankly. They're buying into something because they think they're cheap, which can be extremely, extremely dangerous, right? To me, as I spoke about, maybe last time I spoke to you, but I spoke about many times over the last sort of six, seven months, you had the Fed raising rates. And because they were raising rates, the yield curve was not only flattening, but inverting, right? Because as we know, they control the short end. The short end is going to follow the Fed. The long end is going to follow future growth and inflation expectations. So as they're raising rates, future growth and inflation expectations were coming down, right? So the long rates were coming down relative to the short rates. If we unwind that logically, if they start, if they stop raising rates, which they clearly have done here, and if they start cutting rates, then it goes the other way, right? Now, long-term expectations for growth and inflation by logic will go up, right? So it's like if you think if there's a recession coming and the Fed is going to cut rates, then you should be long the very short end of the curve. You should not be long the long end of the curve, TLT, where, where, where like it seems like everybody wants to be, right? Because you're going to get a steepener, right? The market discounts the future. It doesn't just do today, right? Oh, the Fed cut rates, so 30-year bonds go up. Wrong. It's like the Fed cut rates, so 30-year bonds are, are going to start going down, right? And rates, 30-year rates are going to start going up. So I think that's the danger of what people are, and maybe they're not even thinking about that. I think most people, typical kind of retail investor, is thinking more like, I'm sick of losing money in the stock market, so I'm just going to get in bonds and be safe, right? I think that's more what they're thinking about. But I think they're missing the, the point, which is that the long end is just not the place to be in that situation. I think earlier you said the, the correlations. You talk, you're talk, earlier you were talking about the correlations and how bond, stocks were falling as bonds were falling this year. And it's interesting because that's what happened in 2022. And if you the bonds were falling with the stocks, and actually was pretty, if you would identify that correlation, it was easy. But if you stuck this year, looking at that correlation, you got crushed. And I have some personal experience with this, just like the stock, bonds actually did me mediocrely to, to bad, not super bad for the first like seven months and stocks rallied like crazy. And then the short end, actually that they, the rates rose as the stock market was rising. So just goes to show that the, the correlations change. And I don't know, can you speak to this value of back tests? Because I feel like if you do a back test, like I, I would say I have the the skills of like a, a six month a guy guy who just got out of college who's been doing investment banking for six months in terms of like making charts and stuff because I I've you know made a lot of charts and presentations and stuff and it's so easy I get so easy to make a chart to show whatever you want if 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 your boss says 
show growth doing this, show this. You just choose the metric, you you change the y-axis. You don't have to be a, a genius to do that. And the same is true with back tests. Like if you honestly, Jason, if you were my boss and you told me make some back test to show this, I could do it. And I, I'm not a statistical wizard by any means. I would say just speak to that. And that's why people who follow back tests tend to get crushed. I've observed. I did an interview with Annie Duke about a month ago. Oh my gosh, she's great. She's great. And she made the point where I said to her, I am using data because I'm trying to take my behavioral biases out of this whole thing, right? And I'm trying to use data. And she made the point, data's great, okay? But just like anything else, to your point, you can take the data and bias it any way you want so it becomes even more dangerous if you do that, right? You can make the data look like whatever you want if you want to use bias. And if you're relying on that data now and you've biased that analysis, then that's even worse. So to your point, you're right. You can make whatever you want look like whatever you want if that's what you want to do. If you're trying to prove a point in retrospect, you can do whatever you want. And that will obviously destroy you when it comes to trading, right? Which is one thing that I love about trading. Bullshit walks. You can make, and I see people do it all the time. I know people do it all the time. They do these incredible analysis with these charts. One guy in my mind in particular breaks out all these charts and shows this and that and the other thing. But you know what? He never uses the same set of charts to make his analysis. So he like has, you can tell, he he knows what he wants to say. And then he finds charts to prove that point right? Instead of looking at the charts and then coming to the conclusion, the conclusion is already there. So now he chases the charts to find the conclusion. Otherwise you would use the same charts every time and be like, okay, here's what these charts are saying now, but he never does that. He finds a whole new set of charts and he invents charts. This over this divided by this inverted is telling you this. And it's like, okay, but that's what you want to say. So that's what you're finding. So to your point that there's a hundred percent fact in that. Like you said, bonds went down and stocks went down, then bonds went down and stocks went up. And I will again say that because it's all about positioning to me, right? They came into 2022 extremely long stocks. Stocks went down. They were going down, in my view, one way or the other, right? And then they came into 2023 super short. So despite the fact that bonds still went down, stocks went up. And then they just change the analysis. You know what I mean? to explain that after the fact. So that's exactly how I see it. And I think it's an important point because your your point is exactly right. Why did it do this then? But then it did this then, right? And I will answer you, it's because of positioning, so. Yeah, and you can always make a plausible argument on either side. And there are Wall Street strategists and Wall Street banks who were positioned very bearish going into this year. And their arguments made a lot of sense, made a lot of sense to me. And now those same analysts are going on TV and saying it's it's the time to buy, and it's it really is crazy. J- Jason, it always makes sense, you know what I mean? No yeah, yeah, exactly. It makes sense, but that that's the point. A, the market doesn't make sense. Okay, so another Annie Duke line. It's like they're playing chess, and she says you can go back and to a chess game that was just played, and you could play it back, and you could go to a certain move and say, look, this was actually the right move to make here unquestionably the right move to make here. That's chess. It's math, right? The market is not chess, right? It doesn't make sense. And the reason it doesn't make sense is because it's a discounting mechanism. So the more obvious things are, and the more they make sense, the more people are going to be positioned that way. 
right? And when they're all super positioned that way, then there's a good chance the market's going to go the other way. And then people will make up the reason as to why it went the other way. But, you know, that, that's why it doesn't. It sounds like it makes a lot of sense, but it doesn't work, right? Right. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that's a great quote. Jason, I remember in our, in our interview in the early summer, late spring, you were short gold. And I followed that trade. I know for a while it worked magically, but the past month or so, gold has rallied like crazy. Did you get out of the, the, the trade in gold in time? And t- tell us about what your view on gold said about your view of, of the economy and inflation and, and what it says now. So we were um, able to actually catch uh, the exact low on gold. Nice. Right? And the reason it happened was, yes, I was short in the sort of spring, summer. Gold came down a lot, positioning adjusted. And then all my trades look like this, right? So you can say, oh, he's saying this, but uh, you can go look at the positioning, right? Um, positioning adjusted. Speculators got mega short. At that point, I'm looking for a market confirmation event. And it happened on the October employment report, right? Which should have been bearish gold along with other things. And gold ended up having a reversal day and closing on the highs that day on a day when it really should have been down. After the report came out, it was down. It made new lows for no reason. It reversed closed basically on the highs of the day up on the day so that's like my signal could get long and then of course what happened was they had the whole israel thing right over that weekend israel that whole thing blew up and gold opened up whatever it was 50 points the next day and it really never looked back right and now they've gotten out of those shorts and they've kind of gone neutral so we're not in that trade anymore but again that's what I base it on. It's all based on positioning. And, and people are like, well, you couldn't have known that Israel was going to, I'm not going to call it get invaded because I don't want to get into the, the politics yeah. of it all. But yeah, you, you couldn't have known that that situation was going to blow up the way it did. And, and that's true. I couldn't have known. All I knew was people were super short and the thing closed up on a day that it shouldn't have closed up on. So I get long. That, that, that's it, right? And maybe if that Israel thing didn't happen, maybe it wouldn't have gone up and I would have gotten stopped out. And okay. Maybe I would have. I get stopped out of trades all the time. It's all just a risk reward thing. As it was, I was risking about, I don't know, 20 bucks on gold and the thing went up 200. So it's a pretty good risk reward situation. And that's all I'm ever really looking for. I can't predict the future. I don't know what's going to happen in the Middle East. I don't know what's going to happen anywhere for that matter, right? But I am just trying to identify based on positioning where good risk reward is. Based on positioning and market action, where good risk reward is. I haven't done the the look to to make to check this is true, but I think that it is said that when there's conflict in the mi- Middle East, often oil goes up and rallies, uh, trades at a geopolitical premium, like it did in the spring of 2022 with with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and yet oil has been dropping like a stone. Interesting. Do you do you have any views on that? You want me to say it again? <laughs> Positioning. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. That's right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. If they weren't long, if they were short going into that, I can tell you that oil would have gone up a lot. The fact that they bought it very quickly means that it's already, they're too long and, and, and then it goes down. Like that's just, this is how I observed markets for over 30 years now. Yes, the logic is there's Middle East conflict by oil, right? Well, now everybody knows that. So therefore, it goes the other way because they, they overposition that way and, and, and therefore it goes the other way. Hey, everyone. Today's interview is brought to you by Sustainable Bitcoin Protocol, 
an environmental solution for Bitcoin. This is something you won't want to miss, especially if you're an asset manager with an ESG focus. You might be eyeing Bitcoin, but are hesitant because of its significant and growing energy use. That's where Sustainable Bitcoin Protocol comes in. They've developed something called a Sustainable Bitcoin Certificate, or SBC for short. SBC turns Bitcoin into the ultimate ESG asset. These SBCs are not just another digital asset. They make your Bitcoin holdings climate positive and even verify the use of clean energy from leading publicly traded miners listed on NASDAQ. They're carefully engineered to support clean energy miners, fuel renewable energy projects, and help you meet those ESG goals that are so critical today. This isn't some pie-in-the-sky idea. It's actionable, it's credible, and it's here now. If you're looking to align your Bitcoin investments with your sustainability goals, look no further. Interested? Speak with your preferred OTC desk, BitGo, Copper, or other leading custody providers, or visit www.sustainablebtc.org. Thanks, and let's get back to the interview. Earlier, you said now there finally is some data suggesting there might be a recession and people are dismissing it. What what data were you look? Was it the job market data? And, and sort of what are, what are your views? Yeah, I mean, all, all the data that's come out in the last few weeks has, has I'm not saying it's, it means it's a recession, but has definitely indicated slowdown. You know, if you wanted to argue the recession was coming, you certainly finally have the data where you can make that argument all day long. Like I say, all of a sudden that's become a bullish thing, not a bearish thing because they're focusing on the interest rates, right? And I'll say it again. The reason it's a bullish thing and not a bearish thing to me is because they got two short stocks. But yeah, it's just funny that that, that they now blame it on that, right? Oh, well, stocks going up because interest rates are now coming down and that's bullish stocks. Okay. Were interest rates not going to come down when everybody was calling a recession in the beginning of the year and they wanted to be short stocks because of that? Did they not think interest rates were going to come down if there was going to be a recession and therefore that should have been bullish stocks, not bearish stocks? Like, to me, all these stories are a fantasy. That, 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 that's all they are. They're stories. They're, 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 a, they're a fantasy. Something needs to be written in the newspaper every day to explain what happened in the market today. To me, it, it, it's, all, it's all just a fantasy. So they can say what they want, but I just think it's funny now that all of a sudden this is good. Bad numbers are, are suddenly good instead of recessionary, which was supposed to be bad, right? Yes. And as someone who, you know, like you, takes part in and observes these narratives every day, I would say, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what to say is that fantasy. It's that the, the fantasy is that these things are related or correlated in a predictable way. So obviously, point Arena A and Arena B are going to have some event. But then after the fact, when they happen, you're going to say, oh, Arena A went this way and Arena B, Arena A went up, Arena B went down, of course. And then the the sort of, you talked about journalism, what I notice in stories and headlines is the word, the words as and amid. So bonds rally as employment data comes in weak. We're not saying that it's bonds rally because, but we're saying as and oil rallies amid geopolitical tension. So yeah, it's it's very hard to predict. And as we said earlier, always easy to justify and explain away after it happens. I mean, with the benefit of hindsight, you could just be a genius. Just just say, say oh, I bought, I bought it the low. I sold it at the top. Yeah. I mean, obviously, humans have a need and a want for things to make sense, right? It, it helps our mind understand it, it helps us think that we understand what, what what's going on so that's what they want to be presented up it makes sense it makes sense but 
and, and it's very difficult to get over the fact that the markets don't make sense. So if you're going to be involved in the markets um, and you're going to be trying to play chess, you, you're going to have a very difficult time over time making money. Do you have a view on any equ uh, equity markets in, in Asia? I know that's kind of how you got your your start in, in, the, in Hong Kong, I, I believe. Chinese markets, they appear cheap and they are cheap, but there's there's a reason. I don't know, though. Hope springs eternal for the bulls, but they have been destroyed. I don't know either. We were actually, someone was just asking me that this morning on my Discord. What do you think of Singapore? What do you think of Hong Kong? And why are they been down so badly so much? And why don't they rebound and all that? And I told him, I said, unfortunately, my only answer is I don't have a clue. When, when somebody tells me that things are cheap, I always get nervous. But having said that, the best time to buy things are clearly when things are cheap, right? But how long are they going to stay cheap for and how much cheaper are they going to get? This is why I rely on positioning. If I could see the positioning in that stuff, I could have a little bit better of a view as to what I thought the market was going to do. I don't know what the positioning is. I feel like there are a lot of people trying to buy the China thing. And so therefore, that's not necessarily a good thing. It, it all comes back to most people are going to lose money doing this over time. So if that's what most people are doing. Then the good bet is to not do that, right? So that's kind of, but if you're a value investor and you can dig into some of these Singaporean banks or whatever, and but I mean, even the US banks, we heard for years, we're trading at like 70% of book, 60% of book, whatever the hell it was, right? And they've gone nowhere. They've been horrible investments, right? Whereas NVIDIA is trading at 18,000 times sale, right? And that's where you want it to be. So, which is why I'm not a value investor. I think over a 30-year time frame, maybe value investing possibly works. Although, if you had been sitting on the banks because they were value, you'd be sitting on them since 2009. We're, what, 14 years later, and you've gotten nowhere, right? Whereas, and you missed out, even more importantly, on a whole bunch of really good investments. So I I wish I could tell you what I thought about the Asian markets, but I, I really don't, I, I don't follow them closely enough because I don't trade them anymore. I follow them. I see what they do every day and I see how they act and clearly they act like crap. So <laughs> let yes. there be something like, I don't know, some horrible news on these things and, so let, them, and let them not go down and then, we can talk, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, okay, that makes interesting. So yeah, yeah, you are much more of a trader than a long-term investor, and valuation as a catalyst for trading is is quite bad. You would say, whereas investing it can, it can work. Oh, I bought this high-quality company at ten times earnings. That's what Warren Buffett does. You that that works if you do it right. But yeah, buying if you, buying if you do it in the nineteen forties and fifties, and you do it under the guise of an insurance company that doesn't have to pay tax, then yes, that works very, very well. All of those time. caveats and special conditions that you added that of Warren Buffett's incredible track record, most of all his, his incredible acumen and that he's better than everyone watching this, is is true. But I, I would say buy, here, buying high-quality companies when they're at distress valuations does work, I think almost by definition. But it's only a high-quality company in retrospect. There we go. You're right. You got me. You got me. You know what I mean? Like it, it might be a high quality company now, but does that mean it's going to be a high quality company in 20 years? You, you don't know. Things change. Until, unless you can tell me the future, thing, things change, right? 
Washington Post is a high quality company, but not if newspapers go out of business because of the internet, right? And you didn't know in 1985 that the internet was going to be what, what it was going to become, right? Um, GE was the highest of, of high quality companies in, in 2000, right? It, yeah. was, it, it was the company of all companies, right? How did that do? Now, I don't know what the valuation was then, but yes, in retrospect, clearly buying something that is going to be great in the future at a discounted price today is going to be a great investment, clearly, right? Yeah. But you don't know what the future is going to bring. We don't even know what, what, what the, in 10 years, if Apple is even going to be around. I'm not saying that it's not going to be around. One would certainly think it was going to be around, right? But we don't know in 10 years. Look, the iPhone came out. No one knew the iPhone was coming out. Everybody thought BlackBerry was the thing, right? That's true. And it was the thing, right? Until the Apple phone came out, and then BlackBerry went from being the thing to being nothing, right? So we don't know in 10 years what, what, what's going to be. And I just, I'm biased to the point that there's so many people now doing this, right? When Buffett was doing it in the beginning, there weren't, there weren't very many people doing that. No one was really interested in the stock market back then. Because 29 happened. I mean, you talk to my grandparents and all that. After 29, no one was interested in the stock market anymore, right? So it's hard to see that now because now everybody's always interested in the stock market, but, and there's so much business built around it. But back then, they, they weren't. So he was able to pick good companies, you know what I mean, at, at good prices. And then he got the advantage of having the United States economy post-World War II be the greatest thing that there was, right? So yes, he did great. But... We don't, we don't know that that's what it's going to be in the future, but you have to bet, okay, everything's going to be okay. And the U S is going to believe it. Okay. So maybe I can find this company and it's trading at a discount, but there's so many people that know that now there's no secret. Everybody you can pull up on, on the internet right now. What are the 20 best value stocks in the U S right here? Right. And in, in, two hours, you can figure out which ones are the best ones. So is there an edge in that? Everybody kind of knows that. So it always makes, it shouldn't be. If, if, if it's a great company, then it shouldn't be trading at a discount, right? Because everybody already knows it. So yeah, it always makes me nervous when they call them value traps, I guess, right? Yeah. yeah. And certainly there will be one or, or t there will be some that are cheap here that in 10 years, we'll be able to look back and say, oh, damn, that thing was so cheap then. I should have bought it then. I should have loaded mm -hmm. up that Disney. Disney. Yeah, yeah. Is Disney a buy here? I've thought about it. I I did a modest amount of work. I, I don't have a conclusion. You got You got to know. You got you got to you got to feel like you have a, a high. I'm just saying. It, and I'm too young to know if I'm good at it or not. It's trading cheap, right? Yeah. It's a great brand name that you wouldn't think is going anywhere. They have incredible properties. They have a great, so they say, leader and whatever his name is, Iger or whatever. Yeah. Right. They they they've got it all. So you should be loading up on Disney if that's your case, right? Let's talk in 10 years. Hopefully I'm still alive and hopefully you're still doing your thing. Let's talk in 10 yeah. years and see how Disney does, right? If Disney grows in the next 10 years, as it's grown in the last 30 years, then you'd have to think that Disney is one hell of a buy here, right? Yeah. Stream, the streaming business, I don't know a lot about it, but I know it's really tough and it's basically been focusing on growth, not profitability. And there needs to be some some action so they actually stop losing billions of dollars a year. So that goes for Warner Brothers, WBD, Disney, Netflix. I mean, Netflix is now making documentaries. Is, is, for is streaming even a thing in 10 years? You don't know. Yeah. Well, you got a chip in your brain and you just say, hey, man, I, I want to just watch Mickey Mouse. You just go, bop. <laughs> you don't know. 
Yeah. And, and, and they have all streaming Disney has to pay not of the royalties to the, the chip company in the same way that companies have to pay 40% of their earnings to Apple or not 40%, but you know what I mean? For, for on the app store. Right. I you remember what was that movie? The matrix. Yeah. Oh, great movie. And the guy wanted to learn whatever twi- Taekwondo. Mm-hmm. So they just like put the program in his brain and in an hour, he's an expert. I mean, Maybe it will be that. And if it's that, then streaming ain't worth zero. They just yeah. invested how many billions of dollars into this stuff, and it's worth zero. Yeah. I don't know if that's what the world's going to look like. I personally hope to God it's not, but I would have hoped to God 20 years ago that the world didn't look like it looks now. So it's not up to me. So you're right. You buy a company at a, at a, a cheap valuation. It can work great. Yes. Yeah, and it's about the quality of the company and the earnings power relative to the valuation. So like a piece of garbage company at six times earnings is much worse than like a a NVIDIA or a very high quality company at 20 times earnings may not, people may not not call that a value stock, but it's value and growth are kind of the same thing. And often six times earnings, it's like, let's look at those numbers. Let's look at those adjustments. Let's look at, I mean, all these banks that are cheap now on a price to book basis, they're not including unrealized losses on their held to maturity securities. So a bank that doesn't have- Most are not including? What? I think, and I'm no expert on any of this, okay? But I think. You're looking at the price to book and saying it's at a value. What's the book value when 40% of commercial real estate gets foreclosed upon and all that is on your books? Yeah. Now what's your book value? Mm -hmm. Yep. Right? I don't think that people are looking at that when they're saying that. I think that, however, the stock- and the market being sort of all-knowing, the wisdom of crowds, right, does know that. And that's why they're so cheap, right? I mean, I know a guy who is that I grew up with who owns the largest piece of the largest office REIT in, in America, okay? And this guy's a billionaire and owns the Minnesota Vikings and all that stuff. And, and he, he said, he said, look, man, at least 35 to 40% of this stuff that we own is going right back to the banks in the next 12 months. So, I mean, you're talking about millions and millions of square feet of office space in New York City. So how's the bank's balance sheet looking at that point, right? How's the price to book looking at that point, right? So, and I'm not the only one that knows this. I think everybody knows that. And that's why the stock is so cheap. So now you have to bet on it's cheap. As long as that's going to be okay. Well, if you know that that's going to be okay, right? Then you know a lot more than most. And if you know that that's going to be okay, then here's what you do. Start buying up office real estate on the cheap right now. If you know that office real estate is going to be okay, right? Yeah. So it's a lot there. I've dabbled in a few, I mean, one office read in particular, and it happened to work well because I got in at a time when it was peak pessimism earlier this year. And also, it's like the, if it's a publicly traded company, it's known how much of their interest expense is hedged. I mean, they could, so one, one real estate investment trust, like they could sell a luxury apartment for like $60 million. And that, that more than covers their interest ex- expense. But yeah, the banks, it, it could be an issue. I, I think, I don't know how much in the apartment buildings that's also screwed up. Obviously, everyone knows office is, is an issue because of work from home. But I mean, there's a, there's a housing crisis in America and uh, your rent prices are still going up, at least officially, although that's lagging. So I don't know. We'll, Those we'll are the three most intelligent words you could ever say right there, man. What? I don't know? Yes. <laughs> yeah. You don't know. And I don't know. You don't know the future. If, you, if we knew yeah. the future, it'd be simple. 
Yeah. So like I say, value, yes. Is it value? Is it value relative to where it's been? Yes. But that tells us nothing. Is it Mm -hmm. value relative to where it's going to be is the only thing that matters. And who the hell knows that? It depends on so many things about the future that we don't know. We can't predict the future. But you can make the bet, right? And that's kind of the Buffett idea, right? You're making the bet because the thing's worth 10 today. It's trading at five. So if the future ends up being shit, well, then... Maybe I'm not going to make any money, but I, I, hopefully I'm not going to lose too much money because I bought the thing for five when it's worth 10, right? So he, he calls that what? The buffer or whatever he calls uh, it. Margin of safety. Margin of safety, right. So I think that's the general idea. But trying to find something with margin of safety right now, I think is so very difficult because there are so many people doing it. Yeah. You, I mean, you got to, I, I think, for example, Meta with the benefit of hindsight, Facebook was very, very cheap, well known as a, high quality company, like a compounder, grow their earnings 20% every year. And it was trading at like 10 times earnings. I mean, like much cheaper earnings than many crappy companies, in my opinion. And, but that was a large cap stock. So I think it's very rare that you have a, a large cap stock that is just going on sale. Like, I think you, you do have to go into the, the sort of sub $10 billion stuff for real. And Jason, I totally, all of, all of your critiques of you know, value investing or you know, quality investing, long-term investing, Buffett, Warren Buffett style uh, of stock picking. I take all of those critiques. I it's, It is very hard, but so is your way of doing it. Like you are very good at what you do. So it's less hard for you. Oh, I take nothing away from whatever, what anybody else does. Yeah. You know yeah. What I mean, they should do what they should do. And if it works for them, then that's what they should do. Everybody should be doing what fits their personality. Right. I happen to be a fader of mass consensus. Well, that's yeah. my personality, right? Warren Buffett, whoever happens to be a, a reader of financial reports, put on your glasses and go through that whole thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that, that's what he should do, right? And the, who am I to? I, I'm never going to be you know, as successful as Warren Buffett. I mean, that's clear, right? So I'm no one to disparage. You're still young, Jason. Well, Warren, <laughs> but no, I, I don't even have the, you know what I mean? I, I don't yeah, even yeah, have yeah. the goal to be that successful, but you know. So I'm not here to disparage Warren Buffett, you know what I mean? But yeah, people should do what they do. Do what fits their personality, you know what I mean? I'm, I, I do this because this is me, right? Everybody yeah. should do what, what they do because that's the only way they're going to have success doing it. And, and the, the truth of the matter is, is that it's really hard to beat the market on a long-term consistent basis. And someone who you have a full-time job other than trading and investing, even if you're a really smart person, but you, you're working a 60-hour work week, you're going to underperform someone who's doing this full time, probably. Maybe. And what? Not if you get into an index fund. Exactly. I'm talking about purely active, but that and that's why for most folks who are not doing this professionally, yeah, index and passive. If you get into an index fund, you're probably going to beat ninety five percent of the people that are doing it professionally. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that's the laughs on them, right? But you're but you're going to neither underperform or overperform the average you will be average by definition but average can be good but so jason i'm saying you're, you, what you're doing of trading and fading consensus and then what i'm talking about like long-term value investing both of those can work i think the point that we probably can agree on is that what is likely doomed is short-term trading based on valuation that is just a dead man's game it doesn't even make sense short-term yeah. trading based on valuation it, the, the words don't even go together but it, I mean, it, some it, people do it. it. They, they say, sense. oh, it's cheap. Long-term okay. investing based on valuation. Yes. 
right? But short-term trading based on valuation. I mean, you bring up Meta, okay? Yeah. Oh, Meta got down to 10 times earning and it's a great growth stock. Okay. So it was a buy. Sure. But you know what? Meta was a great growth stock at 20 times earnings too. Okay. So if you bought it at 20 times earnings and it went to 10 times earnings, you lost 50%, mm -hmm. right? So yeah, at 10 times earnings, because that's where we happen to know it bottomed, it was a great buy, right? You could have made that same argument at 15 times earnings. You could have made that same argument at 20 times earnings, right? So trading based on valuation is silly. And when you really wanted to buy it, quite frankly, was when Jim Cramer got on TV and cried about it and apologized to everybody thinking that Meta was good and said, okay, it's time to get out of it. Because, and it's nothing against Jim Cramer, but that's the psychology and that's the panic that you want to fade, right? And if you just waited till then, you would have bought Meta at 10 times earnings, right? But you're right. And, and you say you can't beat the market. My goal is not even to beat the market. That's not what my game is. I have a trading process that has to this point in time made money over time and that's great but my business is based on the fact not only that it makes money over time but that it has very high negative correlation to other investment processes so my clients are not you you know what i mean and my dad my mother those are not my clients right my clients are people that have diversified portfolios of return streams and need something that has a negative zero to negative correlation to those return streams. The magic is not in beating the market in itself, right? The only alpha that exists is diversification, right? So I can help them diversify their portfolio because I have a return stream that is negatively correlated to their portfolio. Right? Are you talking about the CTA that you run? Yes. Okay. That's why people allocate money to me. And that's the only thing that I tell them they should allocate money to me. Don't allocate money to me because I'm going to beat the market. Okay. Mm -hmm. Allocate money to me because I have a return stream that is going to be negatively correlated to the rest of your stuff. So when you put that together as a portfolio, the efficient frontier can be pushed out. Right. So you're right. It's not even about beating the market, right? You can beat the market if you go ahead and find a bunch of zero to negatively correlated return streams that all have a positive expected return provided that you rebalance at the right time yes yes but truthfully if you could find 20 return streams and again this is all looking into the future but if you could somehow find 20 return streams that all had a positive expected return and all had zero correlation then here's what you do you put them on and you go to sleep for 30 years and you wake up and you're a billionaire right um that's the game of beating the market. There's no beating the market, right? That's the game. It's about- Wouldn't passive outperform that? It would have, a, on a sharp ratio, yeah, that would be- It should all be passive, okay? But yeah, it, yeah. it's gotta be passive things that would zero to negative correlation against each other, right? That That's what beating the market is to me, right? You don't give money to, and you've seen it, especially in the last few years, the hero hedge funds that were beating the market, as it turned out, right, were not beating the market because as soon as all the crap came down, they got destroyed, right? They lost just as much as they should have given how much they outperformed by. There was nothing inefficient there. It was totally efficient, right? Just because the markets go up and you buy all the high beta stuff and you do it in a leveraged manner and therefore you beat the market, 
does not mean that you beat the market, right? <laughs> it means you beat the market for that bull market time period, right? But then the markets come down and all that high leverage, high beta stuff comes down more than the market and you just gave back what you made. Like that's just normal. And that's what pretty much everybody did, right? So the magic is in the diversification across return streams. That, that, that's beating the market. And so is your CTA discretionary or systematic or both? It's a combination. Okay. So what, what we're talking about, about your, your market views do play a role in that? None. None? No. But, but like, for example, when you were bullish th this year, that, that did not imp influence that at all. Oh, but you see, one is the other, right? Why am I bullish? Well, for the same okay, reasons, okay. for yeah. the same reasons I'm long. I'm bullish because everyone's short, right? Yeah. The way my stuff works is I only get long when everybody's short. So if everyone's short, I'm long. Is that fair to say that that's unlike most CTAs, which my elementary understanding of commodity trading advisor CTAs is that when oil goes up a little bit, they buy more. And then when it goes up more, they buy more. Most CTAs are trend following. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they're just, and, and they won't have a view either. They're just following the trend, right? Which does its job as well, by the way. Trend following is not the greatest investment in history, but it does its job. Right. It puts up pretty much the same thing as the stock market over time. It puts up about somewhere between six and eight percent. And it actually draws down less than the stock. It'll draw down twenty percent every once in a while. Right. Whereas the stock market will put, go up eight percent and it'll draw down forty, fifty percent every once in a while. Right. But what trend following has is non-correlation to the stock market and non-correlation to the bond market. So if you're in a 60-40 portfolio, you can stick 20% of that in trend following and you will have a more efficient portfolio, right? And then you stick other stuff in there that also like me, for example, my stuff is mostly people who have a lot of CTAs and trend following stuff. So clearly I'm going to have highly negatively correlated to their trend following, which is easy to do. It'd be negatively correlated. Just take the opposite side of them all the time. But then obviously you're going to lose when they make and you're going to make when they lose. That doesn't add any value at all. What my stuff has the goal of doing and what it tries to do is until the trend gets super crowded, I'm not short. So the trend runs. I don't have anything on. This just one simple example. But the trend runs. I don't have anything on. Then it gets super crowded. Now I get short. And okay. Then I, and then hopefully I catch it and it goes down. So while they're making, I won't really lose. And while they're losing, I won't make or lose, right? And then while they're losing, I will hopefully make. So that's kind of what I what I'm trying to do. Got it. So you're a a hedge. You're negatively correlated, not just to stock market, but negatively correlated to CTAs, which themselves market themselves as zero correlation to the stock market. Yeah, I've had actually not recently, but I had somebody tell me that about 15, 20 years ago when I was looking to raise money, and he had a multi-strategy fund like that, and he was like, "Well, I'm not going to invest in a hedge to my hedge," <laughs> which okay, fair enough. People do what they got to do. I, so earlier you, you said something negative about someone, the hedge fund industry. So I'm going to join you in that critique, but a, a different different one about, and actually I'm going to you know, push back hopefully politely about the diversification point. Doesn't all this in fr efficient frontier, all that research, it assumes opt optimal or good rebalancing and that you even can rebalance. For example, let's say I'm 95% uh, in stocks and risk assets, but 5% in a tail risk fund in March of 2020. And March, the tail risk fund just crushes it and 10Xs my portfolio. And the value of that diversification is then I can use the generated cash to redeploy it 
in distressed stocks and, and equities that are trading at a low valuation. But unless it's like an, an overlay portfolio, that's hard. I mean, I, I've heard stories of like people who invested in a hedge fund and they, they asked for their money back in 2015 and they're still getting checks in the mail in 2022 or something like that. So it, it, it's, it's harder to move money around. And like, like all this academic stuff that we, we critiqued earlier, real, real life can get in the way. Yeah. I mean, if you know that going in, then you shouldn't invest with somebody that won't release your money you yeah. know, for, for 10 years, eight years or whatever. You know what I mean? Like my stuff, you want your money, close your account today. You know what I mean? I'll, I'll have it to you tomorrow. I, I don't even have to have it to you because I don't take your money to begin with. Right. I'm just I have discretion over your futures account is all I have. Right. But, okay. So you're over. Okay. Yeah. 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 You know, there's daily liquidity and I'm not talking about me, but it, it shouldn't be. And I understand a fund is a different situation. Yeah. But even so, that you invested with the wrong person, if that's the case. If you're waiting five, six years and you're still getting checks in the mail, then you should have read the prospectus, man. Yeah. <laughs> and that's your fault, right? So, Definitely. But you're right. I mean, look, it even gets into all your positions. Any position that you have on, theoretically, right? Okay, you got in 10 days ago and it's making money today, but that's irrelevant. The question is, would you still have it on today? And so you should be making that decision every single day, except for liquidity issues, except for transaction cost issues and all that, right? Which is real world, right? Theoretical world, you should make that decision every day. Do I want this thing on today? Forget about the fact that I'm in the money on it, right? Do I want it on right now? And if the answer is no, I should get out. But clearly then your transaction costs are going to eat you up, right? So it's a difference between theoretical and real, I guess. Right. So Jason, you don't have any positions on except for one. What is that one position and why? Hey everyone, we're about to get back in the action, but before we do, let me give you a lowdown on what's been brewing at Blockworks. Come March next year in the heart of London, we're bringing together hundreds of the world's heavyweight asset managers. I'm talking about the big hitters, fund managers, allocators, payment providers, and the major high-frequency traders. They'll all be converging at Digital Asset Summit London, the mother of all digitally focused conferences in the institutional space. If you're curious about what the big money is up to in the digital asset scene, this is the event for you. We're diving deep into the intersection of macroeconomics and crypto, dissecting where we're at at the market cycle, and we'll be getting into the nitty gritty of real world assets. So think stable coins and on-chain treasuries. It's all in the mix. I'm going to be there and so are the forward guide superstars. Michael Howell is going to be there. There's a rumor that Joseph Wang is going to be there. I don't know who started that rumor, but people are saying that. We're also getting into the minds of allocators, so you get a front row seat to what the big crypto money managers are cooking up these days. And because you're a dedicated Forward Guidance listener, here's an exclusive treat. Use code FG20 to get 20% off. Just hit that link at the end of this episode, so gear up, because I'm looking forward to seeing you in sunny London town come March. Thanks, let's get back to the interview. Well, we know why. Because when I put it on, there was people, you know, my, my data showed that people were massively short. And then there was some bad news for it, and I got long. That's why. It's a Swiss franc. And it was all on the same day of that of the, the employment report day, right? That, that was sort of a big trigger day for me because it was an obvious piece of news, and it confirmed what had been going on up to that point, and it meant that the trends should have continued because that was, was making these trends continue. Bonds were essentially going down. It's so funny that it was only six, seven weeks ago, but the numbers were coming out stronger. We had a very strong employment report, a very surprisingly strong employment report, which means bonds should be going down. Interest rates are going up, which is bullish dollar, right? 
And what happened that day was the number came out very strong. Bonds did, in fact, go down. The dollar did, in fact, go up. But the Swiss franc, for whatever reason, didn't go down. It went down, turned around, and closed up on the day. And I will argue the reason didn't because everybody was already too already short. So I got long that, and we have been sitting on that. I have been sitting on that since then. And from there, I, I don't do anything. It, it immediately went in the money. It was, in, it was a great trade after about three weeks. Pulled back, about 60% of it pulled all the way back, but that doesn't really mean anything to me. And now it's kind of going back up, and, and that's wonderful. They don't all work like that. Most of them get stopped out, but I'm in it still because it's in the money. If, if it had, wasn't in the money, I, I, I'd be out of it. I'd be stopped. So, so that's the only trade I have on, but, you know, it kind of jacks me up because usually I don't have like one trade on. This has been a sort of a very rare period for me. I have like three, four, five, six kind of trades on type of thing, or at least even if they're not on, I have like a bunch that I'm trying, right? Where if they shut stuff's crowded, they might get stopped and all that. But there hasn't even been anything for me to do other than this. But in the meantime, because of the risk reward in it, I was just calculating today that trade. So that's six weeks now has made 3% for my portfolio. So I only try to make 12 to 15%. So a trade that makes 3% for me in six weeks is, is, is a great trade for me, right? So you were short the dollar along the franc. Sure, yeah, well, along the Swiss franc future. So I yeah. guess short dollar long Swiss franc. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, one trade, it's been great. I haven't had to, like, freak out about other stuff. I knew I didn't have other stuff to trade. I didn't have to worry, you know what I mean? And it just sat on this thing. And as it turns out, as of today, it's a 3% gain from my portfolio, which which is a lot for me in six weeks when I'm only trying to make 12 15% a year, you know? And I had to suffer it coming against me after first being. It's only back to where it was. The P&L on it is back to where it was four weeks ago because it came off and now it's gone back there. But... I don't know the direction. I'm not good at the direction. I'm not a good short-term trader. I can't trade around these positions. And because of that, sometimes it'll go into money like that for me and it'll come back all the way back down and stop me out. It happens sometimes. And, and when it does, it sucks. You see, so you always use stops. Yeah, but it doesn't move. It's my same stop. If I'm, I'm picking turns. So if, I'm, if I buy something, like on that employment day report, mm -hmm. if it had gone and closed below that lower that day, I'm out, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm essentially risking one day's worth of volatility. And as it is, I've made whatever, seven, eight days of volatility, right? So, and that's really, whether it's how I trade or how anybody should trade, that's really the game, right? I've spoken about this a million times, but that's all this game is, right? Is getting into situations of risk reward, right? Where you're going to make four and lose one. That, that, that's all this is. Trying to find how you can get into situations like that. I personally use positioning because that's what I believe gets you into those situations, mm -hmm. right? And then doing it time and time and time again because you're not going to get if, – if you think the game is trying to predict the market, you're, you're in for a, for a really rough ride, man, <laughs> a really rough ride. And, and I speak from experience because I spent the first 10 years of my life doing this, doing exactly that. Now, I'm not saying that you can't do it because I couldn't do it, right? I'm saying you can't do it because I couldn't do it. And nobody I've ever known in 35 years has been able to do that consistently over time, right? And don't believe me. I didn't make this stuff up. Listen to the stuff that some of the greatest guys that ever lived talk about, right? Listen to what Druckenmiller talks about. He'll tell you the same exact thing, right? Mm -hmm. Druckenmiller is famous for having 
incredibly thought out ideas about the market, right? And being, and you read them and you're like, oh yeah, this makes total sense, right? And this guy's super smart and it's so right. And being completely wrong about it, as it turned out, and making money. That's what you have to do if you want to make money. By covering, by getting out quickly and having tight stops. By not caring about what his opinion is. Okay, yeah. <laughs> like that's the whole thing, right? But he just wants to make money. He'll write up his opinion because whatever, he has investors and you write up these monthly letters and you, it's got to sound yeah. all good. And he's a good writer and he's a smart guy, right? But I mean, I literally have a client that tells me that story who, who had money with Druckenmiller for a long, a long time. And he said, the guy used to write the most beautiful monthly reports every month. They were just a pleasure to read. And once you read them, you'd want to do exactly what he was saying. And 70% of the time, they were completely wrong. Yet he made money all the time, right? So, I mean, listen to people like that. Don't listen to me. Like, they'll, they'll be the first ones to tell you. And, and there's no coincidence that they'll be the first ones to tell you because this is who I learned that from. Once I finally got to the point of, shit, I always thought I was the best predictor of the S&P in the world to, well, my P&L is telling me that that's actually not the case, right? Mm -hmm. you know, I'll go through a period where I can't miss for three months. Yeah. I'll make a bunch of money and then I'll go through a period where I can't get Maybe. it right for a Maybe. month and I'll give all that back, right? So eventually I said, this is not working. And, and you start listening to what, what has worked for people. It's not about predicting the future. It's about getting into risk reward situations, which is the same thing going back to your value thing. If you're buying something for five, that's worth 10, then on a risk reward basis, you're pretty good, right? Mm -hmm. that, that's to me, that's, that is all this is. All that's all it is over, yeah. and they're obviously having the discipline to only do those. Listen, I'd love to trade the spoos. I saw this thing ripping when that the day that that thing came out and yeah. a couple of weeks ago, where yeah, yeah. the, the refunding announcement yeah, yeah. was not as bad as expected. I could go in there and, and, and start buying spoos and get in front of that whole train, right? But I don't because while it might have worked then, it won't work the next time, you, you know what I mean? And it won't work over time, right? So I stick to what I do. That's the other part, you got to figure it out. Mm -hmm. figure out something that gets you in those risk reward positions and then be disciplined enough to stick to what you do. I've had one trade on for six weeks. You know what I mean, and people are like, Oh, well, you're not doing anything. Okay. I'm not doing anything, but I just made 3% in six weeks. So that's all I'm looking. That's all I'm looking to do. Yeah. And, and sorry to harp on this point, but do you think that getting in that risk reward of you're losing one to make four, do you think that that kind of requires stop loss positions and that it's kind of, so it's very hard to be a successful trader without stop lo stop losses. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes, it's all it's all got to be about that risk management. The only reason that it's lose one is because that's where my stop is one away, right? Mm -hmm. But it's not just one away as a random number. It's one away as at least for my process, right? This is where what I'm trying to do doesn't make sense. If I'm trying to buy the low, buy the turn, right? If I'm trying to buy the turn and the market makes a new low. Well, then I didn't buy the turn, did I? So therefore, I'm out. Makes a new low, I'm out. Right? That's kind of what I like about my process is it gives me that. But it's the same thing. If you're buying a breakout, right? And then it goes back down and goes back below the breakout level. Well, then it's not a breakout. So get out. It doesn't really matter what you're doing, but you have to define that. Yeah. Where, I think where it's wrong based on what you're trying to do. Trading and successful trading and successful investing are like two islands where people there can make on the island, but make money. But the, the area in between is, is filled with, with sharks. And I'll, I'll give you an example. So like, yeah, you always, for trading, you always have to have stops. I realize, or I think I realize, I, I hypothesize that 
the, the real value of where, where the real money is made, if you're a fundamental stock, single stock, stock picker is on buying a stock and then it goes down and then you knowing it is an extreme home run and then buying, buying more and, and doubling down. Whereas in trading, that's just, is going to get you killed. No, that's right. Peter Lynch has that, that line, right? Like Taco it, Bell. Yeah. But when, yeah, one buck or whatever. No, it's like, this is the only place where when things get cheaper, people want to sell it and not buy it. Right. Yes. Which for trading, they're, they're right to do that. But for investing, they're not. Provided you're right about the investment. You could have yep. been buying Enron because it was cheap, right? Yep. They didn't find that Enron was a scam until the stock was a dollar, you know? So it's just like anything else. Provided you're right, then sure, you want to buy more if it's going down, right? If you're right, everything's golden, you know what I mean? And if you're wrong, this is the problem with, with that kind of thing, right? If you're wrong, you're dead. And then you got nothing left to, to invest, right? So... But theoretically, if you've done your homework and blah, 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 you know what I mean? Then, but I'm sure people did their homework on Enron too, and nobody knew it was a scam until zero, right? And I'm sure people did their homework on other things too, and, and that, that, that went to zero. Like, so it, it, it's a tough call, man. I mean, you, you're right. If it goes down, you want to buy more, but yeah, only if it ends up being correct. <laughs> Definitely. It's, it's, a, it's a hard game. Jason, final question for you. So you only have one position now. What are things that are getting to the point where they're interesting? Oh, if it gets if position gets a little bit more extreme, I might get into something. Like, what do you think is the next position you're likely in? Or, or if you don't know, you don't know. The Canadian dollar is getting sort of interesting here as a okay. buy. Um, it was unfortunate that it, well, it was fortunate for me because I had the Swiss, but it was unfortunate the Canadian and the whole U.S. dollar got crushed the other day on the CPI because the Canadian went up. But now it's sort of coming back down. If it can keep going down, it's getting close to a buy for me there. There is nothing for me in oil. People are like, and this is the thing about contrarian. I always say there's a difference between, I can't trade contrarian participation and positioning. People like to trade contrarian price. seems like everyone who wants to trade contrarian price has been buying oil for the last week. And, and it just keeps making new lows. Trying to trade contrarian price is death over time. Again, I speak from experience, right? This is yeah. why I got into the positioning thing. Because I used to try and do it price-wise. And that's death over time, right? So there's nothing really there. Stocks are, to me, a buy, if nothing else. But you're not a high confident view to put a position on, but yeah. And I can't chase up. I, I don't chase it. If I catch it right, I catch it right. If I don't, then it's gone. Because then at that point, my risk reward just gets too skewed, right? So I'm not chasing stocks here. Bonds, I think, could be a sell pretty soon, but it's going to have to be on something. An interesting point on bond, like the TLT, for example, is down was down at one point sixty percent over like two and a half years. Yeah, but people forget during those two and a half years there were two or three times where the thing rallied between fifteen and twenty percent. Right? Didn't mean it didn't go sit down sixty percent eventually. Things don't go straight. Yeah. Right? So anyway, I think somewhere, and I don't know if it's here. I don't know if it's in a month or in three, four, six months. But at some point, I'll probably be looking to get short bonds based on this stuff. Anything else that's sort of close? Not really. The Canadian thing is the main thing. Long stocks is another one, which I just missed. Because if I don't get my confirmation, then I just miss it. It, it just goes without me, and, and that, that's fine. It happens all the time. That's really it. That, that's kind of really it. We're, we're starting to maybe get interesting in things like wheat, but uh, not quite yet, which I'm glad because wheat's just about to make another new low again, so I'm glad that I didn't get involved there. So... For me, I have to think about not only where I get in, but where I'm going to get out, right? Mm -hmm. So that's um, tough. 
it's one thing, like I could have tried to buy wheat recently a couple of times and hey, the thing rallied 10% in a short period of time, but I never would have gotten out. So it's just right back down to lows now. So as it turned out, it would have been a horrible idea, right? So I'm glad that I didn't. But anyway, those are kind of the things I'm looking at here. How Okay, so there's when to get in, when to get out, but I guess the corollary is when to stay in. And so I just, as an example, and I want to say like, I am not been a successful short-term trader. So like, I'm not saying I have a good track record at all, but I did happen to to buy Meta at like the, the lows, like 85 bucks or something, but I sold it at 120 or 130 and it went to 300. So like, can you, can you advise me on how to know to like double down on your winners and scores? Why'd you buy it? Valuation. Okay. So you bought it on valuation. I bought it the day after it's earnings and I bought it after hours. So I, yeah. Okay. So that's why you bought it because you thought it off for good valuation. Yes. How did you define good valuation? Just 10 times, 10 times forward earnings, lower earning companies that then. Okay. So you figured 10 times forward earnings was a good number for, for meta. Yeah. Because of their growth rate. So where is that not a good number? Where is that too expensive? At the time I put the trade on, I didn't have a view on, but I guess I should have had. That's the point. Like you're getting in for a reason. Like Mm -hmm. I say, like my stuff, I get in for a reason. Everybody's short. So I buy. Well, when everybody's not short anymore, I get out. Doesn't mean the market doesn't keep going higher. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. But what I am looking to do is over, right? I'm looking to buy because they're all short. And if there's some kind of thing that gets to, to start going up and then all those shorts have to get squeezed, I'm basically just front running all those trend followers getting squeezed out, right? Once they're out, well, my edge is gone. So the market's still either going to go up or down. There's just as much chance of going up as down, right? It's going to go somewhere, but it doesn't matter. My edge is gone. So if you think the 10 times earnings for Meta is a value and you think 25 times earnings for Meta is overvalued, well, then buy it at 10 and sell it at 25. Yeah. Right? The reason you got in was valuation. Then the reason you should get out is valuation. Well, I sold it at 15 and I it went to 30 or 35 or something. Okay, because you're just guessing. Yeah. What good is guessing, right? But but, but we're always guessing about where, the, where it's going to go. You're always guessing. But my point is your guess should be based on your belief system. Your belief system is that 10 is too cheap. Good, yeah. buy it. Then where is it not too cheap anymore? Yeah, okay. And if the answer is 15... First yeah. of all, I would argue that 10 was not cheap enough if your answer for overvaluation is, or yeah, fair no, valuation yeah, is 15. Yeah. But whatever your number for fair valuation is then is where you should get out. You're buying on valuation and get out on valuation. Yeah. And I, I guess I did, but I, I did it kind of with my lizard brain. And I guess you're saying I should write these things down and have a no, process. You did it because you made a quick P&L and you yeah. looked at it and you said, that's a lot of money for a kid like me. And I can go on vacation with my girlfriend now to Hawaii and not have to worry about it. So I'm going to sell it and that's what I'm going to do. That's why you yeah. did it. Am I yeah. right? Which has nothing to do with why you got into the trade or why you should get out of the trade. Yeah, so, I'm, I'm, you're right on the emotional decision, but yeah. Right. I mean, I don't know if you have a girlfriend or if you go to at the time. At the time I did. All right, whatever. That, the point is, if you got into it for a reason, then you get out of it for the, for the same reason, right? If you're a valuation trader, then you get into it because it's a cheap valuation. You get out of it when, and your view it is no longer a cheap valuation. What I would have told you was, People are still super short NASDAQ here. So the NASDAQ's going to keep going up. And therefore, Meta most likely is going to keep going up. So hold it until people are no longer short NASDAQ anymore, which would have basically had you hold it all the way to about May, June. Mm-hmm. That's what I would have told you. But yeah. 
that's for me, not for you. You know what I mean? If you're buying on valuation, sell it on valuation. That, that's the best thing I could say. Okay. Well, well, I appreciate that advice. Jason, thanks, thanks for coming on. Tell us, remind us about what you do at the Crowded Market Report. Where can people find your, your work, the Discord, as well as your YouTube channel? Crowded Market Report was started after I was in the Market Wizards book and people were asking me if I could like show them my, my methods and show them my madness and all that. So we started as a way to centralize that. It includes a weekly report that I do, which I had always done. It's basically my weekly journal for my trading for the last 25 years has become the weekly report, which we go into the positioning and I go into the trades that I'm looking at based on positioning and what kind of things I'm looking at to do based on that. Right. And then I kind of put it all together, like based on the position of all these different things, this is maybe the high probability trade across all these different assets. That's what crowded market report is. With that comes a discord membership, which I always say, I, I never knew what discord was, but the guy who started this whole thing up did it. So we're on discord. We've got a whole bunch of people on the discord. Now we've been doing this for about two and a half years. We probably have, I don't even know how many people, six, 700 people, probably maybe 150 who are pretty active on discord which has become super interesting because it's become a really cool community. Anybody that gets on there that wants to be a jerk off, I kick them right off. I think you can take you $100 and stick it. You know what I mean? So we have some really good people on there who are doing things other than what I do, right? And they have a tendency to share with each other. I mean, that's kind of what we have developed. I didn't know that this is what it was going to become. When this thing started, I thought we'd get maybe like 30 people on there and we'd sit there and talk about the markets. But we have attracted a lot of sort of really cool people. And they're working with each other too, outside of what I do. They take kind of what I do and they add it, which is what I tell them to do. Don't trade like me. Take maybe some of the lessons that I've learned and add it to what you do, right? And that's what they do. And they kind of talk to each other, I know, and they help each other and they program a bunch of programming kids on there and they kind of help each other. And they've all, not all, but a, a whole bunch of them I have seen really become much better traders. So that's kind of what that is. It also comes then with the COT charts, which we produce as well. That's what Crowded Market Report is. I do things on YouTube every week. I do like a five or six minute video talking about whatever the hell is bothering me that week. It's usually basically whatever annoyed me about what everybody on, on CNBC was saying last week. I have to get it off my chest. So I'll do a video talking about this is the mistakes they're making. I'm very behavioral biased. My background is in human behavior and all that stuff. So I like to find where the behavioral biases are. And I like to kind of point those out, at least from how I see it. So I, I do a lot of videos talking about that type of stuff. Once in a while, I'll do a video talking about a specific market, but it's all based on kind of my views on the behavioral thing, right? So I do those videos on YouTube every week, which is on Crowded Market Report, YouTube or whatever the hell you call yeah, it. Yeah. And then there's also something on, on Twitter, which is like crowded underscore MKT underscore. Yeah, we got you. Right. People, people so viewing that, this. Right, that, yeah. right. So that's Twitter. I'll, I'll, sometimes I'll, I'll like, I try to put something on there once a day. Again, it's all based on stupid shit that I'm here. <laughs> and I'll try to put like, here's why I think this is stupid shit. And I'll put it in sort of a, I try to do it a little bit in a funny way. So you'll check that out too. There we go. All right. Well, Jason, thanks so much for coming on and thanks everyone for watching. Thanks for having me. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at Blockworks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined.